When I first started working at QSO VSO as the Outreach Officer for Western Canada and Western United States, people always were telling me about this guy from Saskatchewan uh, named Bob Sutton that was working on model forests. And I, I just thought, wow, a person from Saskatchewan working on model forests. I'm always thinking of Saskatchewan as being kind of prairie-like anyway. So um, I didn't understand what model forests were. and But anyway, I started seeing some documents coming from this amazing guy named Bob Sutton. He's a forester. Bob, you're in Vancouver. Why are you here? You're on, uh, you come to a seminar. I've returned for a seminar, actually, in a concept called outcome mapping, which I hope to share with my partners in my model forest. It's a really excellent looking tool for exploring how we affect change, who we work with, and a little bit just about how we might have to do things differently. And it's got a nice piece built in that uh, I appreciate, and that's monitoring and evaluation. So it's a nice package for my model for us to consider right now. So I'm here in Vancouver, lucky enough to have a chance to chat with you and enjoy uh, a very short visit back to Canada. Yes, so uh, I, I hear you say my model forest, that's wonderful you take ownership of it. It's in Honduras, is it? Correct. Where is it in Honduras? The north coast of Honduras, uh, much like Canada we have provinces, only they're called departments. So this is in the north coast department of Atlantida. Atlantida. It stretches from Trujillo on the west to Taylor on the east with the third largest city. It's an ex- awesome location. Um, Bay Islands, true Caribbean, wow. uh, mangrove forest on the coast to uh, high mountain tropical rainforest and cloud forest. So. so it's in that part of North America touching South America, that squeezed part where Costa Rica is? Basically, a little bit north of there, certainly. So within a short distance you have very different terrain. Very different. And uh, we have 13 different ecosystems just on the coast alone. Wow. And the coastal ecosystems don't reflect the rest of the country. The rest of the country is basically a pine-dominated ecosystem. So once you're over the rain shadow of the mountains, um, it's a totally different different world. And it's quite different culturally as well. Pine? Uh, planted pine? Uh, no, this is natural pine. Um, Honduras does have some plantations, but that's a relatively new event for Honduras. Okay. So, Bob, you set out for Honduras two years ago. You went under CUSO, and you were there for the merger between CUSO VSO. Um, did you speak Spanish before you left? No, and if I can offer an encouragement, that was both a fear and it's been a reward. Um, it's also meant some long days of listening very heavily and also uh, a lot of patience on behalf of my partner. So I went knowing three words of Spanish. Now I can actually communicate reasonably well. I teach the odd short course at the university. I had a conversation returning on the plane with a very pleasant lady from Honduras. We basically exchanged our own life histories and those of our children. So. In, it does, Spanish. It does, in Spanish, so it does. It does come. It's not an easy task, mm. um, but QSO VSO does provide some language training support, um, and from there, it's just a matter of your personal discipline, the willingness to learn, and to stop thinking in English. I found was a trick for me. Stop. Just, and now he has to speak in Eng- uh, think in English for the next few well, days. Well, it's interesting. When I returned the first little while at the airport, I found myself. <laughs> Word order was a little bit out of out of sync because you start to think in in Spanish. So it is possible. So those of you considering learning a new language, please stick with it. <laughs> okay. So.
So you get out there and tell me how you live. How do you live there? Do you live in a small house or? Um, it's interesting. There's a very solid, large group of expats that typically live in the north coast in Honduras, and I received some good advice from a former Kiso cooperant who knew enough about me and my history to say you've lived and worked quite a bit in northern Saskatchewan. I appreciated your comments about the uh, perceptions of Saskatchewan. The northern part is true Canadian boreal forest, lots of water, lots of rivers, etc. So for mm. me, as a forester, that's kind of the connection. Um, in the case of, of, of moving to Honduras, she said to me, why don't you consider looking at a smaller, smaller setter, setting, more of an opportunity to really understand the culture, to live in the culture, and to interact with the culture. So I chose to live in a smaller community, uh, La Masica, it's about 4,000 people. It's basically much like a small prairie town in a sense with all of the uniqueness that goes with a Latin American culture. So, um, And I would not hesitate to recommend that to anyone considering. Um, live in the community. I live directly in the community. I do work with youth in the community. I'm able to work directly with my neighbors. It's a big enough town that um, you have access to some basic facilities. But it's small enough, much like a prairie town, that you get to know all of the neighbors. And if you make even a, a small effort to uh, say hello and, and be greeted, um, you end up being receiving so much back in return. So. Mm. Now today you're going to be cooking me a Honduran meal. I'm excited about that. What are some of the typical foods that you eat in Honduras? Honduras has a wide range. And in the same way, there's a fairly diverse set of economic circumstances. A typical Honduran meal, if you went into a restaurant, um, you would order a plato typical. And in Honduran terms, that's rice and beans, and you don't have any meal in Honduras without tortillas. Generally a piece of dry, fairly salty cheese, and likely a small piece of meat, either beef or chicken or pork. Uh, in the coastal communities, it's a little bit different. It's because it's basically a fishing a fishing uh, existence, there you'll typically find uh, fresh fish, you might be lucky enough to find the odd shrimp, and perhaps a few other delicacies. So, mm. on the other hand, there is um, a number of other foods that are traditional, but are really reserved for special occasions. If I could find all the ingredients for you here, I would make tamales, oh. which are wrapped in banana leaves. They're I know where you treat. can find that. Yeah. <laughs> I love tamales. I've oh. actually enjoyed, and cooking is a good bridge for culture. Yes. Uh, I started doing recipe swaps, so I learned how to make tamales, and in return, uh, I was asked about Canadian food, traditional Canadian food. Oh, yes. And that oh, could dear. be another podcast subject, I'm sure. Yes. Um, so I chose to say, let's look for something that at least we can find the ingredients easily that, that's close to what Hondurans would really probably And you probably made be. macaroni and cheese. No, I didn't make <laughs> macaroni and cheese. We went ahead and made cabbage rolls. Oh, I made nice. two large vats of cabbage rolls. He's from Saskatchewan. Between <laughs> about 20 minutes of starting to cook them, people were at the door. What is this smell? What is that crazy Canadian oh, really? doing? And they were gone in a heartbeat uh, with a request, please, can I get the recipe for that? So it's actually a neat way to, um, to exchange. And it helps people appreciate the face of Canada as well. Because if I asked anyone on the street, what, and I did that the last time I was actually back in Canada, and I've asked my family, so what would you describe as the typical traditional meal in Canada? And that's a hard one to answer. Yeah. What's your cultural background? Where do you that's live the in the country, nice etc. So. That's the nice thing about Canada. So uh, 
back to the work. Before you left, you were uh, you were a forester, correct, and an educator. Yeah, I was teaching as well. Okay, so uh, you go down there and you participate in this thing called a model forest. Had you heard about model forests before you started? I had the good fortune in my career to live in a model forest community in Saskatchewan. This concept dates back to the 1990s, about 1992 after Rio, when people were challenging themselves to look for new models to affect change, and a realization that you couldn't just solve complex environmental problems with technology. There's a really critical social aspect about people owning, visioning where they want to be, and affecting the changes. It doesn't matter where you are, in a First Nations community in Canada, or if you happen to be in a forest-based community in Honduras. There's a lot of similarities. So I lived and worked 15 years in a, in a model forest community in a couple of different roles, and it's really a privilege to actually now kind of be able to reflect on some of that and some of the changes that I saw in Canada and see the differences, appreciate the differences, but also the strengths that come from just listening to what matters to people, how they feel about their resources, their resource use, how we organize, and how we deal with the problem. So it's really a, a neat privilege for me to see this from a Canadian perspective, but experience it also working right alongside of, of Hondurans. So model forests, they're model forests all over the world, are they? It's uh, grown to where now we have an excess of 51 uh, model forests. Uh, there's actually 22 in the Latin American and Caribbean region. It's wow. the largest region right now. Uh, so it's an interesting concept. In a nutshell, I usually explain it with um, three key words. Uh, it's a landscape. And it doesn't mean you own the landscape. It simply means you look for a landscape that's large enough to embody a representation of the actors and the issues and a diversity of the ecosystem. So you have so basically a living laboratory. When you say actors, you mean communities, the flora and the fauna. Are they all actors? They're actors as are or as is the context of your policies, who is oh. active, other groups, other uh, non-governmental organizations, okay. your politicians, because forestry on the whole certainly has a link to e ecology and the economy, but there's a more important link for communities and that's the, the social side of it. Okay. So, um, t yesterday you gave me a beautiful pen that was made from one of these model forests. Can you tell me a bit about that pen? How was it made? Uh, the pen was actually handcrafted by a local person, uh, one of our model forest partners. I mentioned three keywords. The second keyword is partnerships. Oh, yes. Okay, so, so, a landscape large enough to encompass all of the issues and all of the actors, as we, as we talked about. But more importantly, a partnership. They have to commit to work together, to share what the issues are, and to work together for solutions. So one of the Model Forest partners actually has a program in uh, working at sustainable use of both rare and endangered species in Honduras. Your pen is constructed from Honduran mahogany which is a very sought-after tree, a lot of Ill illegal logging pressure happening on it. In this case, I can tell you this wood came from a certified production chain, and more importantly, it was produced by hand for, uh, for, for sale 
under a, under a chain that ensures that the product was sustainable and that the production is sustainable. I showed you a picture, I think, as well. Yes. It was produced on a foot-powered treadle lathe. Oh, beautiful. Uh, this organization works through the whole piece, appreciating the, the sustainability of the resource, equipping the producers that harvest the timber uh, to deal with that in a sustainable fashion, and then adding the value-added side. They do a number of workshops with youth, women, and men to create sustainable opportunities in the communities to do a value-added piece. So when you, but uh, you know, I'm understanding all these pieces about this model forest, but what do you do there? I fit the third part of the three key words that I had, and that's a process. Okay. It's not a cookbook. It's not a legislated process. It means that there's a set of principles that basically guide. And that includes a willingness to work in a broad network in the region and to share what you learn, what your problems are, and to seek out experiences in other, part, other parts of your own country or seek out experiences in the region. So my direct role is as what's termed a model forest officer. So I work directly in an environment and risk management office right alongside of Hondurans. At a capacity sharing level, um, I happen to have some background in GPS and mapping, some uh, issues, some issue resolutions uh, experience as well. So I work directly with them mm -hmm. to, to, to assist at that level. Amongst the other partners, it's a process. So they self-determine what are our issues, what do we want to tackle first, how do we want to go about it, who do we need to talk to. So my role is basically just to help a little bit come alongside of that and because I've had some experience in a Canadian context, sometimes I can ask the questions from a different perspective. Oh, perfect. Okay. I don't understand why we can't tackle that. We have an issue with, for example, um, severe erosion following this. Oh, well, we can't. So I can ask perspective questions from a different place to, to, to enlarge, really, sometimes a little bit of the discussion. I learn as much from that as I get to share, which is uh, really a critical piece. I use the word my model forest, and it doesn't mean I own it, it simply means we all own it in a, in a collective sense. So a landscape, a partnership, and a process that's open enough to support the priorities and, and the direction and the needs in each country, but with a commitment to turn around and share that. Wow, so when you leave um, uh, Honduras, what do you leave with? What does Bob went there with a lot of knowledge and life experience because you're in your 50s, you're not uh, straight out of university, you've got lots of experience. So you go there, what does Bob Sutton come back with that's more than he left? I said to you the other day that if I put this experience on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, I wouldn't have difficulty explaining a 25 wow. out of 10. So, uh, what it really comes down to, at a personal level, um, you have a wonderful opportunity to live in, alongside of, understand, and actually become a part of another culture. Two years is not enough to really know it well, but it's enough to really appreciate uh, Hondurans for the integrity, for the spirit, for the life circumstances they work through, and just for the passion that they bring to the work they do. So, on a personal level, it's an amazing experience. On a professional level, equally, to uh, step into a situation where you're learning, but you're also sharing, and to be able to work with people with their own solid experience base um, is an amazing opportunity to just learn, 
and, and you bring that home with you. So, uh, and you gain, in my case, the question you asked about living, where do I live? I have okay. a whole new circle of, of lifelong friends, uh, ranging from watching young children. I was invited, for example, to be the, the patronato, basically, for a young girl graduating from kindergarten last year. Aww. Which meant I got to help present her diploma for kindergarten and dance with her in, in this final piece at the end. So you're not just there as, oh, there's that strange guy from another country. You actually have the opportunity to become a part of a community. And that's something that um, is a wonderful opportunity. One thing I have to say, I really love your enthusiasm, your wonderful uh, sharing of knowledge. Um, your your non-use of technical words to explain to people like me and others I bet in that community about what's happening and your appreciation for nature and the environment so that's very precious to me too so thank you Bob for serving with us for two years I look forward to hearing more about what happens in the field and I have to say a big thank you to Kiso VSO because this was something that for me was part of a long time ago, if the opportunity ever presented, it would be a wonderful thing to do. And the entire KISO VSO model really not only makes that possible, but also provides the support and the encouragement and the patience and some of the skills that you need to, to build that. So for anyone considering a volunteering opportunity, take a look, make a contact, investigate. It's an experience that you'll be farther richer for what you share. Well, if you're in Western Canada or Western United States, feel free to phone me or email me. I'll be happy to answer your questions. And thank you, Bob, for your wonderful work. Thank you.